Chicago's fair collection system, Ventra, turned 10 years old on Friday. WNUR's Brandon Condritz rode down to the 95th and Dan Ryan L station to find out how the CTA celebrated the milestone and what's next for the public transportation across the city. On Friday afternoon, commuters at the southern tip of the L's red line found more than the typical hustle and bustle of the 95th and Dan Ryan station. As patrons hopped off their trains and went up the escalator, they were met with music, art, and history, all to celebrate Ventra's 10-year anniversary. Ventra is Chicago's first fare collection system that allows riders to pay for all of the city's public transportation services, CTA, PACE, and Metra. When it launched in 2013, Ventra made fare payment across Chicagoland entirely contactless, and this sound quickly became synonymous with hopping on the L or bus. The Ventra fare collection system has been around for 10 years. It's gone through a host of evolution and innovation and we really wanted to take the opportunity to celebrate Ventra, celebrate our riders, and kind of just have a fun event at a station. That's Molly Poppy, CTA's chief innovation officer. Although Ventra officially hit the terminals, stations, and streets of Chicago in 2013, its 10-year history is full of change already. So in 2015, we launched the Ventra mobile app, which brings together Pace, Metra, and CTA, so you're able to pay for all three regional transit agencies through the mobile app. We've done partnerships to improve our Ventra vending machines. So you've seen new vending machines roll out. So really in the last 10 years, we've made marked improvements to start to have those partnerships with Apple, Google, and really start to meet where the contactless payment industry is. While Friday's party was full of Ventra history, it was completed with a drumline and DJ, a photo booth and interactive memory wall, sweet treats, and a presentation by Chicago's own social media historian, Sherman Dilla Thomas. Poppy said it was important to host the celebration at the 95th Street Station, and she and her team worked to create an event that engaged all of the afternoon's writers. When you think of a, a huge, great station in CTA, you think of 95th. It has so much space. There's a built-in DJ booth. We have a DJ here two times a week. So we wanted to use that, the space, and also be in the community where we can celebrate. You know, we didn't want to do it someplace downtown. We wanted to do it where we can meet our riders, and 95th Street is one of our highest ridership stations. As an Auburn Gresham native, Dilla Thomas has spent most of his life commuting through the 95th Street station. With thousands of TikTok and Instagram followers, he's used to making videos about Chicago's history for viewers from all over the world to enjoy. But he said presenting at Friday's celebration was special. I'm honored. I spent a lot of time just in my life catching the bus and the train at 95th Street at the Dan Ryan. And so to be disseminating history here is cool. But it also proves the point that positivity wins out because there are a lot of content creators they got a million followers. They got a million views and streams on YouTube. But the city don't ever ask them to come do anything, right? They're not asked to come speak at events like this. Thomas took listeners through Chicago's fare collection history. Throughout most of the 1900s, riders used coin collection boxes to pay their fare. In the 90s, CTA rolled out magnetic strip cards that riders swiped at the turnstile, and the first version of contactless CTA payment debuted in 2002. Eleven years later, CTA made the move to Ventra, which had one 
billion card, ticket, or mobile wallet taps in its first five years. I think we're just not only just celebrating them, but just celebrating the innovative ways Chicago pays for fares. Having to get a venture card can sometimes seem cumbersome. You just want to throw a couple bucks in, but robberies and financial type of crimes have gone down tremendously because we use the venture cards. Thomas also shared some of his favorite CTA facts, including how the Blue Line was the first ever train to run down an expressway, and how Chicago was the first city in the nation to use an electrified third rail. His presentation also looked toward the future, which got riders like Christian O'Gal, who's from the suburbs, thinking about CTA's next steps. If you live by the highway, he said that your lifespan is about 20 years less compared to like in the north side of the city where there's expansive public transit. You live healthier over there. It just goes to show like for the longest time I didn't have a car and I always like had put an importance of using public transit for a lot of people who don't have cars like me. It just goes to show that there needs to be more investment in the south side because there's not as much lines and services on the south side of the city. The CTA is working on some expansion, like the Red Line Extension Project, which proposes a 5.6-mile extension of Red Line service south of the 95th Street stop. It's been in the works since 2006, and a preferred track alignment was selected in early 2018. Although progress is slow, both Ogao and Thomas said Friday's event shows that CTA is making efforts to invest in the south and west sides of the city. I think that they care a lot about investing in expanding lines and expanding services. What's really stopping, I think, is just funding, really. Expanding and investing in infrastructure, or I think just in the United States in general, can be so hard compared to you see in other countries like China, where they're doing so good with like building all this really nice infrastructure while here in the U.S. we're kind of like falling apart. So I think that bringing awareness is the first step into making sure our infrastructure in the city and in the country is on top. When you're visible on the south side, it makes the south side feel like they belong to the city. And then when you feel like you belong, you participate. And we need the south and west side to participate more. Looking forward to the red line expansion all the way out to the far south side, but also making it easier for folks to be able to use public transportation helps us all. Aside from train service expansions, Poppy said CTA will soon get to work upgrading Ventra's infrastructure. After all, it's been 10 years since the thousands of contactless readers were installed at turnstiles and on buses throughout Chicagoland. In the next probably year, year and a half, you will start to see brand new Ventra equipment roll out and we will have a brand new Ventra system on the back end as well. You know, in the last couple of years, we announced Ventra on Apple. So we have the virtual Ventra card on iPhone. We have the virtual Ventra card on Google Pay. We're really going to build on that digital experience, continue to look to expand it and really have new equipment because the equipment that we have out there is 10 years old and it's time for a revamp. Doors closing. Above all, the celebration was a chance to reflect on everything that makes the CTA special. Taisei Okazaki, who's from South Loop, said he's been all over the country, and the CTA remains one of his favorite public transit systems. I'm originally from Japan, so I know how good transportation can be. You know, I travel around the U.S., and this is the best transportation. You know, it's accessible, it's okay on time, not necessarily the cleanest, but, you know, compared to Philadelphia or New York, it's cleaner and it's nicer. It's been like 30 years since the color scheme, which I think is a pretty smart idea you know, make it visualized so it's easier to transfer and whatnot. Thomas said he hoped the celebration went beyond just talking about the Windy City's public transportation. Because the party was all the way at the southern tip of the red line, he encouraged Chicagoans to explore parts of the city they might not have experienced before. It's very unique. Again, it's not something typical for 95th and the Dan Ryan, right? On your way here and on your way home, maybe you're experiencing other parts of the south side. Maybe you're stopping at restaurants you didn't know existed. Maybe you're looking at houses in the Arkansas 
architecture here and you're like, oh my God, that's cool architecture. But at the end of the day, even those who were just coming and going through the 95th Street Station rode away with a greater sense of our city's transit system history. On Chicago's South Side, Brandon Conrads, WNUR News. Moving on to arts and entertainment, last week, you probably heard some songs blasting from Kresge Hall. Acapella auditions were in full swing. Erica Schmidt gives you a behind-the-scenes look at the process. Set up your tents and microphones. Mic check, one, two, one, two. Camping out at Kresge and Losey. What's the norm last week for undergraduate acapella groups? Week two of fall quarter is acapella auditions week. Communications senior Craig Carroll is the Northwestern Acapella Community Alliance directing manager. He oversees the 12 different acapella groups and helped plan the rigorous process. We reserve all the rooms on 25 Live for all the groups for auditions and callbacks, and we send out all the communication to the auditionees. So making the spreadsheet that they sign up on, basic stuff like that, and distributing the callback lists. According to Carol, about 250 people auditioned this year, which was higher than last year's numbers. Sespi senior Yasmin Mohammed Rafi is the wellness chair for Purple Haze, a competitive co-ed acapella group. She said Purple Haze looked for two main things for their group. Vocal blending, like if we have an alto callback come in, can they sing along with our altos in the group? And how does that sound like? How does it work together? How does it click? And then also social fit. And social fit can look like a variety of different things. We have people from all sorts of backgrounds, whatever that might look like, involved in our group in the past and also in the present. Mohammed Rafi described the overall acapella audition process as rigorous because we ask folks to come in for a 10 minute audition and prepare their own song. And then if they're called back, we ask them to then prepare a part of our repertoire. And if they have multiple callbacks, then they might be learning multiple pieces. Kennedy Nassim is the wellness chair for Brown Sugar Acapella, Northwestern South Asian Interest co-ed acapella group. As a sophomore, Nassim said it is interesting to be on the other side of the table this year. I feel like I wasn't a baby long enough. <laughs> I feel like it was just yesterday that the same thing was happening to me last year, which is kind of crazy. But I think it feels good. Like the people that have come in have been super talented and just like overall, it just seemed like really nice people. Brown Sugar does blended songs with many pop varieties and South Asian songs together. This year, the acapella group's callback song they asked the auditionees to prepare was Willow by Taylor Swift. The more that you say, the less I know. Whatever you stray, I follow. Communications freshman Jocelyn Tisdale participated in the auditioning process this past week. At the first round of auditions, she sang the song You Don't Do It For Me Anymore by Demi Lovato because it's like a very versatile song, so I wanted to like show off all parts of my voice with it. Of the five groups Tisdale auditioned for, she got callbacks for all of them. Her schedule this weekend had auditions from 6 p.m. to 12 a.m. on Saturday and 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday. Despite the rigorous process, Tisdale said the highlight of auditions was meeting all of the different people. I walk in and I feel like I'm already like in the group because everyone just gets along so well. So that's been the highlight is that I've just gotten to like meet so many people who are just radiating like really good energy. At the end of callbacks, Carol said he also runs the conferral where the different acapella groups gather, discuss, and decide who their preferences are. Now, the auditionees are waiting for their official placements.
According to all of the current a cappella members I talked to, there are many misconceptions of Northwestern a cappella. For example, Nassim shared that, Anybody can join Brown Sugar, which I don't think is pushed out enough. If anyone is interested or has an interest in South Asian music because it is a very specific type of music that's very different from Western music, it's really about showing the love of maybe like testing out a little fusion. As for Carol, who is also a member of Extreme Measures Acapella, he made one thing clear. A lot of people like to say that Pitch Perfect is based on Northwestern. Pitch Perfect director Jason Moore based Pitch Perfect on a nonfiction story about a few different college acapella scenes. However, Moore also credits his time studying at Northwestern as some inspiration for the movie. Carol said that many people who are not involved in the acapella scene assume that it must be so cutthroat and competitive because of Pitch Perfect's portrayal of acapella. The truth is that we're all just friends because of acapella and there's very, very little feeling of animosity between the groups, which I love. And I don't want anyone to have misconceived notions about the vibe and the dynamic of acapella. As final placements are made, Mohammed Rafi shared her admiration for every auditionee who went through the process this past week. Taking a risk, being vulnerable, and auditioning for an acapella group is an act of courage, and I think one that is worthy of recognition. So for me, like, my favorite part of recruitment, truthfully, is seeing who decides to take that leap and audition for us. From WNUR News, I'm Erica Schmidt. Romance novels have become increasingly popular due to social media like TikTok and BookTube. But are these romance recommendations really as good as they seem? Or is BookTok just another way to sell a happily ever after? A war being waged on Dragonback. A business mogul nursing a revenge plot. A small town magic user harboring a secret curse. What do these three things have in common, you might ask? They're all the plots of romance novels and they're all on the New York Times bestseller list. Romance novels have always made up a significant percentage of the book market, especially in paperbacks. But in recent years, romance novels have been selling better than ever before. When I asked for the reason, people generally had one answer. Book talk. TikTok. Book talk. TikTok. I decided to speak with Northwestern students and romance novel enthusiasts to explore why romance novels have made it to the forefront of the book industry and how social media may play a part in that. Romance novels may be the book du jour, but what exactly is a romance novel? By standard definition, a romance novel has to have a happily ever after in it. That was Amanda Anderson, the proprietor of The Last Chapter, a romance novel-only bookstore in Chicago. She says in recent years, that definition has expanded to include a wider range of books. What I would just consider romance are books that are just about so much more than obviously like the physical aspect that just really dive deep into, you know, like, what it is to truly love in life whether that you know whether we see that in books through partners or through friendships or you know found families or like you know family sagas like it's just really celebrating the love that we as humans can have for each other anderson says she was motivated to start the last chapter because she wasn't seeing the romance novels she loved reflected on the shelves of big bookstores so it was same five authors and i really wanted to create a space that 
not only just celebrated romance as a whole, but like really shine light on just how diverse romance is and really just create like a safe haven for romance readers and readers of all kinds. McCormick freshman Dabna Kuyar, a romance fan, agrees. She pointed out that some classic romance novels still rely on tropes or narratives that reflect outdated ideas on gender roles and societal values. The one trope I do not like is the pregnancy trope. And then sometimes in books, the, the girl will be like, oh, I want to get an abortion. And the guy will be like, no, you can't do that. And I hate when that happens. I'm like, it's her body. Let her do what she wants. Romance novels can be a reflection of larger society. But for much of their history, the genre, largely considered to be one for women, wasn't considered literature. And was even a little taboo. I think that romance definitely used to have this like hush hush kind of feel to it. And it's so interesting because historically romance has all has been the genre that has truly kept other genres afloat. For a long time, it was a number three selling industry in publishing. And it was still so frowned upon. And now that we're at a place I think in the world where we're actually going to be so prideful about what we love to read and what we're reading. It's so beautiful to see. Medill sophomore Eleni Tekos says that they occasionally read romance novels that have been recommended to them online and that while some can be a miss, they often offer an opportunity to read about experiences that they can relate to. One of those books they mentioned was The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I really identified with how um, specifically sapphic love was described in that book because it was one of, one of the sapphic novels that I've read recently that wasn't, I didn't feel like the coming out aspect really took center stage. And you could just focus on like how beautiful it is and how unique sapphic love is compared to like mainstream media's representation of love. So I think that that's partly what I like is looking for that connection to my own experiences. In fact, a growing community on social media, whether on Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, or even Instagram, has driven conversation around romance novels. Kiar says she appreciates how social media allows for greater openness surrounding even the more romantic parts of romance novels. I really love how social media has really normalized reading romance books, especially, you know, as people call it, spicy books. <laughs> and, like, I just love how normalized it is now. Tekos agreed that BookTok and BookTube encouraging people to read is a good thing. I would say that it's probably a net positive. I'm glad that there are queer novels that we have and that people are reading. And I'm glad that, you know, people are sharing the things that they enjoy and that they like to read. However, nearly all the readers I talked to mentioned that book talk, as well as other popular ways of recommending books online, has a flip side. One thing I will say is that recently I've noticed a lot of romance authors, they write books just to put in a specific trope. Well, they do target certain readers just by promoting a book. Oh, this book has this trope, this trope, this trope. And I feel like that's kind of actually killing the romance book hype because so many people are reading these books and the plot is not there, but the tropes are there and it's just not the same. Beanan and Weinberg Sr. Sky Tarshish had a similar sentiment. Although it's amazing to cultivate a habit of reading books that you love, they said, and that provide an emotional reaction. The commercialism of the social media book recommendation ecosystem can be aggravating. I feel like 
it's just important with like with books or music or any kind of media to cultivate your own taste which is hard because market forces are constantly telling you like hey buy this book especially if you're this kind of girl like those shelves at Barnes and Noble that are like woman versus the void because they know that if you're a young woman who finds you know solidarity and being like oh yeah like I get sad sometimes and that's going to be the kind of shelf that you gravitate towards. Tacos agreed adding that the pressure to tailor recommendations to situations or aesthetics can ironically result in a parade of similar or identical reading lists. I feel like a lot of times people are like, will make videos recommending books of like, this. these are the books that you want for this specific time of year. And you know, like, you know, right now it's all of like the dark academia novels because it's fall. And so um, you get a lot of these recommendations from people that all sort of become compounded on each other of everyone's recommending the same things and no one really tries to read anything else. However, the romance novel industry is in constant flux. Tekos hopes that change can extend to romance novels that actively work to subvert common tropes. And I think that's really where I would like to see um, queer novels and romance novels go, is just adding that level of depth that we don't really get in some of like the quicker summer, lighter reads. Because I feel like when we deduce specifically queer love to just the coming out narrative, that it eliminates all of like the complexity and beauty of queer love to like the actual experience of being queer, being in love, being in a relationship. And I feel like there aren't that many books out there like that yet, but hopefully there will be. Anderson says that the online romance community is how she was able to open a brick and mortar store and that being able to meet romance fans in person has only made her more grateful for it. I mean, nothing could have prepared me for the romance community that I get to experience every single day at the bookstore. Like, to have people come in that are just so excited to have a place that celebrates something that we all love. I truly believe that romance books not only shaped who I am as a person today, but really just, like, changed my life. And for the aspiring romance fan, there is no shortage of recommendations. Whether online or even in person. The Wall of Winnipeg and Me, that's like a sports romance. That one was a slow burn. It was like a really slow, slow burn, but I really Yes, okay, Say You Swear by Megan Brandy. I tell people like it is truly the story that made me believe in true love again. It's called Cleat Cute. It's about (laughs) soccer players. Um, Haven't read it yet, but it is on my TV. Probably the secret history. It is so titillating. In the way that I imagine romance novels are. In fact, the online frenzy over romance novels and literature might mean that you can skip the social media altogether. Just ask your friends what's on their shelves. For WNUR News, I'm Mika Ellison. Welcome back to WNUR News. It is 6.22 p.m. Central Time. Everyone's favorite pop culture segment is back. Here's Allison Rauch with today's B-List. Welcome to the B-List, your weekly roundup of celebrity mess and pop culture. This week, celebrity sightings, WGA victories, and Toy Story football. In celebrity, singer Taylor Swift attended yesterday's game between the Kansas City Chiefs and the New York Jets. She was accompanied by Blake Lively, Ryan Reynolds, and Sophie Turner. Speculation continues about the relationship between Swift and Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. Personally, I'm intrigued by Donna Kelsey sitting next to Jake from State Farm at the Philadelphia Eagles game. 
In entertainment, the 2023 Writers Guild of America strike ended last week after almost five months. The WGA agreed to a new three-year contract with studios that addresses artificial intelligence, among other areas. The sag after strike continues, but NPR reported that they are starting negotiations with studios today. In sports, the NFL went to infinity and beyond this week. Sunday morning's matchup against the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Atlanta Falcons was played both in London and in Andy's room. Disney Plus aired a live animated version of the game set in the Toy Story universe. Fun Day Football is the NFL's latest attempt to attract a younger audience. Back in the real world, the Chicago Bears continued their losing streak Sunday. Up 21 points at the half, the Bears squandered their lead with a 31-28 loss to the Denver Broncos. The Bears still have not won a game since October 24, 2022. In more disappointing Chicago sports news, the Cubs and White Sox finished the MLB regular season short of making the playoffs. The Cubs fell 0-4 to the Milwaukee Brewers yesterday, and the White Sox lost 2-1 to the San Diego Padres. The WNBA Finals are set, and the Las Vegas Aces will take on the New York Liberty. The Aces trounced the Dallas Wings last week, and the Liberty clinched a win over the Connecticut Sun yesterday. That's all for the B-List this week. Check in next Monday to hear about what happens this week in pop culture. For WNUR News, I'm Allison Rauch. A look at the weather for tonight. It is currently 76 and sunny, but temperatures will be dropping to low 60s overnight. The last bit of warm weather this year will continue into tomorrow, with a high of 83 and sunny skies all day. Taking a look into the headlines. Northwestern football suffered a tough loss to the Penn State Nittany Lions on Saturday in a score of 41-13. Despite hanging in there during the first half, the second half brought several Penn State touchdowns, ultimately allowing the number 6 Nittany Lions to take the W. 104-year-old Chicago native broke the world record for the oldest person to tandem skydive on Saturday. Her second dive ever, Dorothy Hoffner ascended into the Ottawa clouds to be greeted by friends and other astounded spectators. The government narrowly avoided a shutdown this weekend as the House and Senate rushed through a, set, a spending bill that would prevent not paying 3.5 million federal workers. The bill prevents a shutdown through November 17th, by which time legislators hope to pass pending authorization bills. California Governor Gavin Newsom appointed LaPonza Butler to the vacant Senate seat, which opened in the wake of the late Senator Dianne Feinstein's death. Butler becomes the only active black woman in the Senate, and one of only three ever. Newsom pledged to appoint a black woman if Feinstein's seat ever became available earlier in his term. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can also listen to these and other WNUR news stories on our website, WNUR.news. That's WNUR.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Brandon Kondritz, and our reporters today are also Brandon Kondritz, Erica Schmidt, and Mika Ellison. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Watts. Catch our next newscast on Wednesday, October 4th at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.